Today we're going to embark on one of the letters that are written by the Apostle Paul. Keep in mind that Paul wrote a good portion of the New Testament Scriptures in the form of letters that he had addressed to specific communities of the church in various places that he had visited. Paul had three separate missionary journeys that are recorded for us in the book of Acts primarily and also mentioned throughout his letters. But the book of Acts gives us a great foundation for knowing some detail about the timing of the writing of Paul's letters. In particular, the letter that we're going to be looking at today is 1 Thessalonians. But we're not going to get there just yet. We're going to kind of give you an introduction to Paul's ministry by kind of reflecting on those missionary journeys. His first missionary journey began after he had spent a great deal of time in Arabia, learning from the Lord himself. He had been to Damascus, where he had been blinded by the appearance of Jesus on his way to Damascus. And in Damascus, Paul received his sight and was welcomed into the family of God, the church, by those who were serving the Lord Jesus in that community of Damascus early on. After a short while, Paul was forced to leave Damascus because the Jews were trying to get vengeance against him for having converted to Christianity. They let him down the wall of the city of Damascus in a basket. And from there, he went down to Arabia. We're not told exactly how long he was there. But again, he was taught by the Lord during that period of time. He was told by Jesus that he would become the apostle to the Gentiles. He had a ministry that God had given to him specifically to go out into the Gentile communities and proclaim the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So after a season in Arabia, he went then up back to his hometown, Tarsus, and it was there that Barnabas reached out to him, invited him to come back to Antioch, and he did so. And from there, it was determined that he and Barnabas would be sent out on a first missionary journey. They didn't go that far. They stayed pretty much in what is then known as Asia Minor. They had some miraculous things that took place in those ministries. They came to several different cities, among them Derby, Troas. They went to Crete. They traveled for a brief period of time and then they came back to Antioch to report the fact that the Lord was opening the doors to the Gentile populations in those cities. One of the most significant events that took place in that first missionary journey was the fact that Barnabas had wanted to take his nephew Mark with them. And Mark did go with them for a season, but Mark was a bit timid and he turned away. He couldn't handle the pressures of missionary work. So that the next time that Barnabas and Paul determined that it was a good thing for them to go back and visit those churches that they had been to, Barnabas wanted to bring Mark with them. And Paul said, no, 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 he's not coming with us. Well, Barnabas insisted and Paul insisted. They were at odds with one another. And finally they decided, well, you go your way, I'll go mine. Barnabas went in one direction and Paul took Silas, another Jewish believer, also known as Silvanus, with him on his second missionary journey. They went back, Paul and Silas, through some of the same territory that they, Paul and Barnabas had been on the first journey. They got to Derby and Lystra. And it's there, Derby, that Paul took upon himself the responsibility of having another young man named Timothy join him in his missionary travels. So he, Paul and Silas, went from Derby to Troas, also in Asia Minor. And it was there in Troas that Paul received the vision. Paul had wanted to go up to the northeast, to Bithynia, but a vision from the Holy Spirit came upon him, insisting that he not go in that direction. And he saw in that vision a man from Macedonia crying out to him, Come help us. 
So Paul took it from that, that they were to go across the Aegean Sea into Greece. The first missionary effort into present-day Europe. Amazing thing that God was directing Paul in such a way. It is very likely that it is in Troas that Luke joined with Paul. And I say that because in Luke's writings, in the book of Acts, he oftentimes, using pronouns, referring to himself as part of the team, by saying, we went here, or we went there. Other times, he says, they went to such and such a place. So he's very particular about the fact that if he is with Paul, he identifies that fact by using, we went, instead of, they went. And that is a case when they left Troas, Luke writes in the book of Acts, we went across the Aegean Sea and we landed at Samothrace. And from Samothrace we went to Philippi. So by the time they get to Philippi, and this again is on the second missionary journey now, they got to Philippi, there's Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke in ministry together. In Philippi, Things are going pretty well. They meet with a woman named Lydia at the riverside, and she is the first convert in Europe. But as they continued in Philippi, they became a bit of an issue. There was a servant girl who was demon-possessed. And everywhere that Paul and the others went, she followed behind them saying, Listen to these men. They preach about the God. Nothing wrong with that, is there? They were getting free advertisement. But the problem was, the advertising was coming from the devil. Paul would have none of that. Paul doesn't need, neither do any of us, doesn't need the devil to help us in our ministry. So Paul, recognizing the fact that this girl was indeed a demon-possessed girl, turned to her and delivered her from that demon possession. She was a servant of men who prospered from her problem. Because in her being possessed, she was being used by her owners to bring in a great deal of money because she would be one who would be able to tell things about the future for those who would come and pay the price. So Paul took away their income. They didn't like that very much. And ultimately, Paul and Silas, as a result of that, were put into jail. And they were beaten. Well, Paul is a Roman citizen. They didn't know that. But as it turns out, Paul and Silas, in the middle of the night, beaten severely, were moaning and groaning and complaining, and they just didn't like it there. That's not exactly it at all. They were singing praises to God. They were singing some of the Hallel Psalms, perhaps. They were praising their God. And in that songs that they were singing, the Lord heard. And several of our pastors who have discussed this like to say that uh, it kind of got God's attention. And God heard the music and he started tapping his foot to the sound of the beat of the music. And in doing so, a great earthquake took place. Well, I don't know if that was how the earthquake took place, but there was an earthquake. And it wasn't just a regular earthquake, because not only did the earthquake shake the building in which they were in, but it also caused the chains that they had on their hands and feet to be releasing from them, and the prison doors were opened. And this is in the middle of the night. Now, when the Philippian jailer saw that what was going on and heard what was going on, he was very, very fearful because it was his responsibility to make sure that prisoners do not escape. And as that earthquake took place and all the commotion that was going on, he was certain he was going to die because the prisoners would certainly be out of there as quickly as they could possibly get out. But Paul called out to him and said, No, don't worry. Don't kill yourself. We're all here. You don't have nothing to worry about. This is from God. As it turned out, the Philippian jailer was impressed. And he asked, how can I be saved? And the answer from Paul, believe in Jesus Christ. And you and your household will be saved. 
And so that next morning, the Philippian dressed their wounds, got saved, got baptized, and his whole household followed the Lord. A great moving of the Holy Spirit in Philippi was taking place. Now the authorities came on that morning to address the situation with Paul, their prisoner, and they found out that Paul was no longer a prisoner. And then they found out the reason why. He's a Roman citizen. They were frightened over that news because they knew that anyone who beats a Roman citizen without cause would be subject to the death penalty. They were fearful of their lives. So they asked Paul, please leave here quietly. Paul said, no. I love the attitude of Paul the Apostle. He knew how to push, and he did. And it gave him the liberty to continue for a short while without any difficulties in Philippi. But then the pressure continued, and he ended up having to leave Philippi after a season, but the church was well established. I believe it is there that they left Luke in Philippi because now we're going to see in the book of Acts that Luke's description of the events that followed is such that they went from Philippi, not Luke, but they. So Luke is no longer with them. It's just Paul, Silas, Timothy. They went down south. They went to Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a Roman city, a free city. It was a great city. Some believe that the population in Thessalonica was near 200,000 men and women, plus children. Whether that is so, it's not really something that we need to worry about, but there was a great opportunity in Thessalonica for Paul and his friends to begin that ministry to the Gentiles that God had called them to. And so they began. It was Paul's custom, even in this early stage, to go to the Jewish synagogues first. He couldn't do that in Philippi because there were no Jewish synagogues, but in Thessalonica, Thessalonica there were. And so Paul goes into, on the Sabbath day, the synagogue of the Jews, and he proclaims the news about the Christ, that Christ had to suffer and die and be raised again. And he pointed out to them that Jesus fulfilled all of those things that were spoken of in the prophets. He did that for three Sabbath days. Three weeks in Thessalonica. After that period of time, the Jews began to cause a stir. We're not really told how much longer Paul and his friends had in Thessalonica. We know that there were many converts. A great number of people were converted, both Gentile and Jews. But the Jews who were not willing to accept, again, caused a great stir. And the Christians convinced Paul, you need to get out of town for a while. And so Paul agrees. He leaves Thessalonica. And he and Silas and Timothy go down to Berea. That's the next stop. Interestingly, Berea is mentioned only in the book of Acts a couple of times. It is there that it says that Paul proclaimed the good news as he had done in Philippi and Thessalonica. But the unique thing about the Bereans is that they didn't just take his word for granted. It tells us that they looked into the word of God to confirm what Paul had been telling them. And in that, Luke tells us they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Well, that was great for Paul, but it wasn't the place that he was going to remain. He felt an urging to go further south, leaving Macedonia down into the region that was known as Achaia. And so Paul, leaving Berea, alone goes to Athens. He leaves Silas and Timothy there at Berea. But he tells them that when he gets down there, he wanted them to come to Athens to meet him there. Well, Paul, in Athens, proclaimed the good news again in a great city, the city that was filled with idols. Great philosophers lived in Athens. And it was there that Paul went to the Areopagus and he proclaimed the gospel message to those great philosophers. 
Some of them believed, but not all. But he had to leave Athens, as he did in the other cities, and he went from there to Corinth. But he had hoped that Silas and Timothy would join him in Athens. That didn't happen. And having gone to Corinth, he arrived there and began doing the same thing by himself, but sent word to hopefully get the information to Silas and Timothy that he had now moved on to Corinth. They got the word. And so finally, Silas and Timothy both rejoined Paul in this second missionary journey in the city of Corinth. Now, Paul is going to be there for about 18 months in the city of Corinth, one of the longest times of his stay in one particular community. There was great work to be done. The reason he stayed there so long is because Jesus had shown himself to Paul in the night vision and said, Paul, don't be afraid. I've got many people in this city. So Paul was given the confidence by the Lord that this was a place where God was going to move greatly. Keep in mind that Corinth was a sin city. You think Vegas is bad? Nothing compared to these guys. It was well known throughout the Roman Empire that anybody that was known as a Corinthian was known as one who was a very, very evil and sinful man or woman. In Corinth, Paul ministered the Word of God successfully. But as he was ministering there, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica because he's concerned about the Thessalonian church. When he left there, it was just a thriving, very small community that he had only spent a shorter period of time with than he had wanted to. And so he sends Timothy back to find out, how are they doing? Are they still believing? Are they still doing anything that they were taught while I was there? So Timothy goes to Thessalonica and returns back to Corinth a short while later with great news. The Thessalonians are thriving, Paul. The Thessalonians are spreading the word of God. They are doing wonderfully well and they are convincing others. And the church is growing. That pleased Paul. He was very happy to hear that. And as a result of the report from Timothy... Paul writes this first letter to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians kind of stands out in church records as the first of his letters that were recorded and kept and are placed in our present day Bible. It's the earliest of his writings that we have. Now Paul apparently wrote many other letters to other churches, most of which we don't have. We find that in 2 Thessalonians, which was only written maybe four or five to six months later than this one, references the fact that in all of the letters that he writes, he writes with a large hand. We don't have all the letters that Paul wrote, but we have the ones that God wanted us to have in the Word of God. And 1 Thessalonians is the Word of God, spoken and written at the hand of a great apostle. And we're privileged to read these words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to this very, very special church. Now, I'm not accustomed, usually, to read the entire text. But today I'm going to do that. I want us to get a sense of what it was like, perhaps, in Thessalonica when Timothy came back to Thessalonica and said, I've got a letter from the Apostle Paul I want to read to you. So think about this, as though you were the Thessalonians hearing these words of the Apostle Paul as he addresses you, the Thessalonian church. He says these things. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in your, our prayers, remembering without ceasing your word of faith, or work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, 
For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error and uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so also as always to fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and ministers of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, We told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live, if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? 
night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love in one another and to all, just as you do to, as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the name of the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you, And testified, For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brother, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the light, night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. 
I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. This letter has just been read in its entirety as it was recorded, as it was read for the first time in that day. Over and over, from that day until now, this word has become such a very, very special word of hope, encouragement, a word of exhortation, a challenging word. He tells the Thessalonian church and all of us who have read this word together today to love one another. And even more so as you see the day approaching. He recognized they had this great love for one another, and yet he told them, love one another more and more. Serve one another with a greater zeal to serve. As you know, the Lord has served you, so also you and I should be serving one another. These words that Paul wrote in this letter, look again at what he told them. So many different doctrinal things that were stated in this Word of God. This short five-chapter letter talks about the fact that we are saved by faith, through grace, that we are to love because God first loved us. That there is a second coming of the Lord that is our blessed hope, Paul will tell us in another letter. In fact, every one of these five chapters ends with the word regarding the return of Christ. We name end times prophecies with the word eschatology. It just simply means end times. Things that pertain to a future yet to be revealed. The Word of God is filled with all kinds of words regarding these end times. Many prophecies, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, have been recorded in the Word of God to let us know what to expect in the last days. Jesus Himself, Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21, always gave us such great information that we can look at and realize these are the things that are happening today. Israel became a nation in 1948. They are the fig tree that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. Make no mistake, we are in the last days. But Paul, in that day, 2,000 years ago, believed in what we call the imminency of Christ's return. That Christ could return at any moment. Paul did not believe himself to be excluded from that great expectation, that blessed hope that he talked about. It was his hope. It was his desire. That's why we read in chapter 4 that we just read this morning that Paul expected the return of Christ while he was yet alive. Because he said, The dead in Christ shall rise first, referring to the rapture of the church, the taking out the harpazo in the Greek, the snatching away of the church from this earth. The dead in Christ, those who are in the grave, will rise first. Their souls are already in heaven. They will be reunited with their bodies in that great event known as the rapture of the church. On his way toward earth, but not to earth, he stops in the clouds and calls the bodies of those who are dead to be raised from the dead. And then after that, immediately after that, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. We will be caught up together to be with them in the air. And Paul says, we who remain and are alive will be caught up. He's including himself. I include myself in that as well. Although I don't know that I'll be alive in this body when he returns, my great hope, and I believe it should be all of our great hope, is that he will come any time. And it would be wonderful if we could be part of that rapture of the church where we're all together in one place and all of a sudden this building is emptied except for our clothing and our rings and our pacemakers and our false teeth and our glasses and all that other stuff that doesn't have to go with us because we'll be in new bodies. We won't need all that extra stuff. We're going to be in glorified bodies that will be built for eternity. That's the promise of God's Word. That's what Jesus said. That's what Paul agrees with and speaks to the Thessalonian church. It is a reality. It is the truth of God's Word. Paul gives us such great detail about the second coming of Jesus. And he wants the Thessalonian church, although he had only been with them for a short period of time, just three short Saturdays in the synagogues, we don't know exactly how much longer after that before he was forced to leave. 
perhaps a week or two or perhaps even a month. But he tells us in this letter he spent every day telling them the good news, the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior was made to them to become a reality. They learned from Paul and they received what they had learned. They were his disciples. He was their great apostle, their great teacher. But they learned. And that's why we come together in this place, in other churches around the globe. We come together as the body of Christ to learn of the things of God. The Thessalonians learned well, and they lived it. They not only learned it and lived it, but they went out and taught it as well. That's what Paul tells us in First Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, You became followers, in verse 6, of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8 it says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. So they learned it, they received it, and then they gave it out. That's a great way to live for Jesus. You learn from the Word of God. What does the Holy Spirit speak to us in places like this throughout the world where the Word of God is taught? Do we take that Word and apply it? Do we let it enter into our hearts so that it comes forth and people hear of it? And people are excited over what God has done for you, for me, for others. That's what the Thessalonians were doing. They had learned and they were willing then to turn from idols to the living God. That's important. They turned from idols. They were Christians then. But before they were Christians, they were heathen. They were Gentiles. They had all kinds of gods that they worshipped. And you might say, well, alright, that's the Thessalonian church and the Roman Empire. Yeah, that's, that's the case back then. But we don't have idols today. I beg to differ. They had idols like Bacchus, god of wine. And they thought nothing of getting drunk in the name of their god Bacchus. Paul later on would tell believers and us here, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Turn from the idols. Oh, I I drink a little bit, but I don't think it's that much of a big deal, is it? It can be. I'm not here to condemn you if you have a little bit of wine. Paul tells Timothy, in a letter to Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach's sake. There's medicinal value in that. Wine was a common drink. It was watered down wine. It wasn't the kind of high percentage of alcohol that we find in our bottles of wine today. But, yes, they did drink wine. Does that make drinking wine correct, fun, good? No. The Bible warns against drinking strong drink. The book of Proverbs talks about not allowing yourself to look on the red wine while it's in the glass. And it gives a reason for it. You'll drink too much of it. And when you do, you'll be like the the man who is so drunk with wine, he falls off the staff of a high mast of a ship and falls and he says, wow, that was fun. That's the idea. When could I have another drink? Do you want that? You're worshiping Bacchus. What about sorcery? Paul mentioned sorcery a lot. Well, sorcery is idolatrous worship. You know what the word for sorcery in the Greek is? Pharmakia. We get our word pharmacy from it. Now, I'm not here to say that it's wrong to get prescription drugs, but it's certainly wrong to take advantage of the drugs that are available in the open market today. You want to be part of that scene? You want to get high? Listen, it's sorcery. It's idol worship. It's wrong. It's spoken against by the Lord, by Paul, by the Holy Spirit in you. What about Ashtart, the goddess of sex, Diana, Same goddess. Pornography. Rampant in the church and outside the church. God help us if we let those idols become a significant or even a part of our lives. Get rid of it. 
Paul tells the Thessalonians, they turn from those. And so should we all. Turn from the idols. What about mammon? Money. The love of money is the root of all evil. A root. Not the root, but it is a root. It is one of those things that we must turn from. Jesus said that you must make a distinction. You either serve mammon or you serve God. You got to serve somebody. How many know that song? Bob Dylan. Hey, yeah, there's more than just a few. If you've been around any time, you know that song. You got to serve somebody. It's true. You got to serve God or you got to serve an idol. You choose. Take your pick. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. All of these things are idols and more besides. We need to be careful. Paul says to the Thessalonians, you left those things to serve the living God. You turned from them. God says, turn. Turn, he says. The warning was from the Lord in the Old Testament as well. Ezekiel chapter 33 reads this way in verse 11 of chapter 3, Say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their way and live. And then he says, Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? The warning is clear in the Scriptures. You need to turn from. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a word in the Greek, metanoia. And it just simply means, I'm going right now in this direction. I'm heading down this path. God says, turn, go in the opposite direction, and go in the path that God chooses for you, completely away from what you used to be wanting so much in your life. Want Him and His beyond always. Never turning back. That's repentance. That's turning from idols to the living God. James puts it this way, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. If you're going down that path, you're turning away from God. You're walking away from Him. You're not facing God in your travels. He's not going before you. He's not lighting your path. My desire, I hope it's yours as well, that we walk on the path that God has set us on and that we put our hands to the plow and never turn to the right or to the left that we let Him lead to light our path. Not only that, but I pray that each one of us would have a desire to walk with Him side by side in the cool of the day as He did with Adam. I pray that it's our desire that we let Him be our rear guard so that He's before us, beside us, behind us. And not only that, He covers us like a hen covers her chicks. Cover us, O Lord, in the shadow of Your wings. And not only that, but He lives in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you who believe. Not only that, but He puts you on a solid rock. A rock that is higher than yourself. A sure foundation. There are so many wonderful descriptives that we have in the Word of God of what God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit do for all of us who believe. Paul has introduced all of these truths in this short time that he had with the Thessalonian church. And he's given them this wonderful information that you have before you. Read it regularly. Understand that what God is saying here to them, He's saying also to you and to me. So let's look again briefly now at chapter 1. I've already mentioned verses 6 and 8, but there's such a great deal more in this one first chapter. I've mentioned also that they turned after they learned. But in chapter 1, verse 10, take note of the fact that they had a yearning. They yearned for the coming of the Lord. That word yearning is a great desire, a great expectation, a hope that is ours. Paul refers again to it as a blessed hope. He says in verse 10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 
That is an amazing statement. At the end of chapter 1, Paul says that we all, they all, could live their lives in great expectation of the fact that Jesus would return for his church. And he says in this passage that we who will be taken up, caught up to be with the saints of all ages in the air with Christ at his second coming for the church, he delivers us from the wrath to come. What does that mean? Well, there are some possibilities. He could be talking about the fact that there will be a final judgment on this earth for all those who are Christ's rejectors. But it doesn't make any sense for us to apply that to what Paul is saying here. He's talking to the church who already knows that we've been delivered from that judgment because we're saved by faith. And the judgment that belonged on us came upon Him Jesus at the cross, and because He took upon Himself that which was to be our judgment, the wrath of God fell on Him instead of on you and me, and we're set free from that wrath. That's a given. Paul's not talking about that end-time judgment of the great white throne that is for Christ-rejecting world only. He's talking about another wrath. So what wrath could that be? Well, the only other wrath of God that's mentioned in the Word of God is the wrath that takes place in a period of time known as the tribulation. Seven years of time that is set aside primarily for the nation of Israel to bring them back to himself, but also for the Christ-rejecting world who will be on the earth at that time, and they will then go through that period of great tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, a time such as never had been nor ever will be again, Jesus described. And that is the wrath of God that Paul is talking about here. You and I will not face that wrath. You and I will not live through that tribulation. We call this pre-tribulation rapture. Not all in the church agree with that. I speak in favor of that particular understanding of the Word of God. I live it as though it is a reality in my life, and I pray that you do too. Because that expectation of Christ's return, that imminency that Paul believed in, and that I hope that all of us also believe in. That imminency of His return is going to drive us. It's going to keep us looking to Him, desiring to do His will instead of my will. I want to do His will. I want to go in that direction that God has chosen for me to go. And knowing that His return could be any time, it keeps me on that path. I hope it does for you as well. If you think that you can just live your life any way you choose and continue down that path of idolatry just because you have said a sinner's prayer, just because you believe that somewhere along the line you accepted Christ as your Lord and your Savior and you've accepted that forgiveness, that's good. But he says that must result in good works that please Him. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's a given. It is by grace through faith that you are saved, not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It's a free gift. But the result of that salvation that you have received must be a desire to do good things for Him, to bring glory to Him, to honor Him, to serve Him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to do His will, to know from His Word and by the Spirit of God who dwells in you that you must do what God calls you to do. James puts it this way. Show me your faith and I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith comes by hearing. It's how we are saved. Works are a demonstration of the fact that we are saved. Paul and James are in agreement with this. The passage that I quoted from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and following, talking about the fact that it is by grace through faith that you are saved. Immediately following that, he says that it is unto good works. Works follow faith. 
It's necessary. Paul says that here as well. He tells the Thessalonian church that you must avoid those things that turn any one of us away from serving God in the way that we should. He talked about to them, remember, that they should not be stuck in that place of passion that turns them away from the truth of God. They should not defraud one another. They should not do anything to avenge any fault because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. All of those things, Paul had warned them in this letter. And he spoke to them about those very things when he was here for such a short period of time. We've only been spending, what about 40 minutes so far into this study? We read the entire letter as it was probably read for the first time in Thessalonica. Did you get it? They did. They became exemplary in their following the Word of God, obeying God's will. And they turned the world upside down according to those who were observing. We'll see that in another letter also. Well, actually, they didn't turn the world upside down. They turned the world right side up. The world already was upside down. And as we sang this morning, they call evil good and good evil. That's happening in our world today. All those things that we see happening around us are happening because these are the end times. These are the last days. I don't know how much longer it will be before He breaks through those clouds. But He's coming again for His church. And we will be caught up together with Him. And there we shall always be with the Lord. Take note of the fact that the second coming is in two parts. Just like the Jews back in the Old Testament, up till Jesus' time on this earth, they saw all the scriptures that were recorded, for instance, in Isaiah, in Psalm 22, and Psalm 69, that spoke of a suffering servant, a Messiah who would be crucified, a Messiah who would die for the sins of many. They saw those things in the Old Testament, but they also saw the Messiah that was coming to reign and to be victorious and to lead the people of God from Jerusalem, seated upon David's throne. They saw these two Messiahs. They didn't know how to reconcile those two. They couldn't until Jesus Christ came. And then that which was spoken of in the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. We know by looking back at what has happened from the time that Christ began His ministry until the time He was raised from the dead. We put all the pieces together and we see He fulfilled both of them. The same is true with us in these last days. You see, Jesus is coming for His church. But there's also very strong implication, if not exact mention of the fact that He is going to come again with His church. And when He comes with His church, He's not just coming in the air, He's coming to set His feet upon Mount Zion. He's coming to end the tribulation period. He's coming to reign, just as the Word of God says. So believe it or not, and I hope you do, there are two events that are completely different and separated by a period of seven years, at least. The rapture of the church happens first, then the tribulation, and then after the end of the tribulation, Christ comes and sets His feet on Mount Zion to reign, to judge, to finish the work. That's the promise of God's Word. Paul spoke of those things in 1 Thessalonians and also in 2 Thessalonians. The one is the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ. That's for you and me, to come for His church. The other is a second coming, which is an approach from heaven to the earth, and he sets his feet upon the earth at that hour, at the end of the tribulation period. That's the judgment of Christ, where he will rule with a rod of iron and establish his kingdom. And the nations will come and serve him in Jerusalem. Those are going to take place, my friends, and we will reign with him. But keep in mind, just like the Jews, didn't know how to reconcile those two different events. So too, many in the church don't know how to reconcile those two events. 
So a lot of the church spiritualizes much of what is told in the, Old, in the New Testament as well as the Old so that they can make it fit in their own minds. But it's not the same event. They're two separate events. And they both are going to be fulfilled by Christ at His coming, at the time of His choosing. These are the truths that we have before us in this great book. Lastly, I want to take a final look at the fact that he says, not only, again, Jesus will deliver us from the wrath to come. We said that the Thessalonian church learned from Paul. And as a result of their having learned from Paul, they turned from idols to the living God. And as a result of their turning from idols, they yearned for the coming of the Lord. That should be exactly as you and I are in our walk with Christ. You've learned, you've turned, and you should be yearning also for His return. And if you don't, you'll burn. I use those words to kind of hopefully set it in your heart. Where do you stand? with Christ. What have you believed about His coming for the church? What do you know about the forgiveness of sins? What do you believe about what the Word of God says with regard to living for Him in a way that pleases Him? The Thessalonians got it right. They loved God because they heard God's Word and applied it I pray that every one of us here has done the same. That's my goal. That's my desire. I want all of us to be there in that day when He comes for His church. And whether we're all gathered together in one place like this or whether we're out in the field or in the office somewhere, wherever we might be, there's going to come a day. Jesus described it. Two will be in the field. One will be taken. The other left. Two will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. The other left. Two will be in bed. One will be taken. The other left. You realize Jesus is talking about three different time frames? Morning, evening, night. Jesus knew that we are in a spherical world. If he had said, it's going to happen at nine o'clock in the morning, would Jesus have been correct? Yeah. If Jesus had said it's going to happen at 5 p.m., would Jesus have been correct? Yeah. If Jesus had said it's going to happen at midnight, would Jesus be correct? Yes, again. Somewhere in the world, all of those are true. All at once, I believe, the world is going to see a change. I want to be a part of that. Do you? That's my great expectation. That's my blessed hope. That's what Paul tells us here in chapter 1. At the end of chapter 2, he tells us again, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? He says again in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, So He may establish your hearts blameless in hopeless and holiness rather, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. In chapter 4, He says the great wonderful message of the rapture of the church. We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then He says in that last verse of chapter 4, Therefore comfort one another with these words. If we were to experience the tribulation, do you think Paul would say be comforted by that? No! He's saying, you won't have to deal with this issue. You'll be out of here when that judgment takes place. He wants to assure the church that He's coming for His church. And we should be looking forward. Jesus Himself said, keep looking up, your redemption draws nigh. He didn't say, look for the Antichrist. He said, look for the Christ, and that's what I do. I want that to be the case for you as well. Finally, in chapter 5, he ends chapter 5 with the same message. He says in verse 23 of chapter 5, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout this epistle, the Lord speaks through His servant Paul of this great, wonderful news that is before us. He's coming again. He's coming again. 
and I believe it's going to be soon. I don't know the day or the hour. None of us do. Don't let anybody try to convince you of that. But what I do know is this. He wants us to be ready. He wants us to be ready. And how are we to be ready? By knowing His Word. Learning and turning and yearning. Those are the three things that we need to keep central in our lives until He comes.